as Marcus led us in prayer and as the ministry worship team led us in song, man, like my heart is just swelling with joy. Joy as a reminder of the God that we serve and the God that we know. And if you're here today and you're hearing these songs and you're wondering what the message is going to be about, I don't have anything else for you other than we're going to talk about Jesus. I don't have anything else for you other than I'm going to point us back to look at our Savior. And as we talk about this new series called his church and his witnesses, what I'm, going, what I'm praying that God would do is he would stir, into our, stir up within our hearts this, this, this joy, this new affection, this, this increased desire to do more than just gather here on Sunday mornings, to do more than just gather amongst our groups and to preach to the choir and to week after week do it and do it over and over again. No, I think God has more for us this day. And so as we... To walk through the book of Acts, my only request for you, my only prayer for us as a church is that regardless of how familiar you are with the book, pray even right now that God would allow you to see it with new eyes. Pray that even right now as you're hearing it unpacked, as you're seeing in scripture this Jesus, ask that God will give you fresh eyes because we all have much to learn and we all have a ways to grow. And so I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into it and, and we're going to go from there. So would you join me in prayer? Father, um, any time that we get to preach your word, any time that we get to hear your word, Father, we're in sacred territory. Hallowed be your name, God. Father, I pray that our hearts even now, that your spirit would work and they would remind us that the words that are being spoken right now are coming from a holy and perfect God. That we're not hearing the philosophy of men's, we're not hearing some craftily, um, Um, manuscripted uh, version that men have come up with. No, God, you've given us your word, and therefore we speak as those speaking, thus saith the Lord. I pray that with that confidence, God, will we know that your word never returns back unto you void. It always accomplishes your purpose and your intended plan, and so I pray that you will give us faith and expectancy to know that, God, as you speak, God, you desire to do something in our heart. You desire to do something in our lives. And not only do you desire it, but for those that know you, God, you promise that you will bring it to completion. And so I pray that we would surrender ourselves this day. That all the distractions and all the cares that this world tries to choke out um, desires and affections for you, Father, would you remove those things, even but for a moment? Would our gaze be lifted upon your son and would we be struck with awe at his beauty? Struck with awe at his majesty. Struck with awe of his holiness. And with the only response, the only appropriate response from us be worship. Worship God. A worship not just simply that is lip service, but a worship with our lives. Help us, Jesus. Help me be faithful to your word. Guard me from error. Guard me from inserting anything that would not honor you or please you. Free me from the the temptation to want to please men more than I want to please you. Father, we need your help. We invite it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. This past Wednesday, uh, we had a prayer walk for a church. And uh, for those that don't know what a prayer walk is, it's a time where we literally walk outside, walk through our neighborhood, and we pray. That's it. 
Um, and so a few of us, we gathered here on Sunday, and, uh, or we gathered here on Wednesday, and uh, Tim, one of our pastoral interns, he led us through the word, and we got a chance to see, okay, God, this is what you say, and then we got a chance to pray for one another, and then we went. And so we walked up and down the streets of this neighborhood, just passing by house after house after house. And during that time, one thing that really stood out was um, I began to remember that this community is so much more than just architectural structures. That this neighborhood is made up of people, and these people are, according to God, made in his image. And that each and every person that lived in those houses were somebody who had a soul that will live eternally. And depending upon what they believed about Jesus, that would determine their eternal destination. And so as we walked, we prayed and we cried out to God, God, give us opportunities to meet these folks. Give us opportunities to talk to them. Give us opportunities to get to know them. Give us opportunities to pray with them. And so we did that for at least what we planned the next hour. And so as we passed by street by street, we'd encounter some folks and, you know, three or four people went this way, three or four people went that way, but... Um, somehow, some way, uh, we all wind up in the middle of the neighborhood at this uh, West End Park. And so we're there in my group. We pull up, and there's a few teens playing basketball. And so uh, a few of us who are a little bit more athletically gifted decide, hey, we're going to play. The guy asks, hey, do you want to play? I'm like, nah, bro, I'm good. Um, I'm just going to stand on the sidelines, and I'm going to cheerlead, and I'm going to encourage you. Yeah, that's good. I've already torn one Achilles. I don't need to tear another one. And so they begin to pray, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see another group roll up and at the top of the park, and there's some other teenagers there, and they start engaging them and starting conversations. And so this picture of the church being out in the world, engaging the people of the world, praying for them, talking to them, asking them, what do you believe about Jesus? And it's just going on and on, and so it's like the team is coming together and As we're talking to the kids that are playing basketball, I begin to ask them, hey, what do you believe about God? What do you know about Jesus? And some of the kids dismiss me altogether. They'd rather play basketball. But one kid in particular, he began to listen. And so as I'm talking, I'm like, man, like, what do you, have you ever heard about Jesus? To which he said, I've heard the name, but I've never heard much about him. This 15-year-old boy in this neighborhood. So we're immediately still, another group comes on behind and They're just praying, and we're asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want us to say? What do you want us to do? And then my gaze escapes to another couple who had left right when we had gotten to the park. And this other couple, Keith and Tim, you know, Keith's out there with his Bible looking like a Jehovah's Witness, and um, (laughs) he walks up to the dude, and, you know, he forces a conversation. Like, I saw the people walk past him, and he turns around and says, hey, 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 what's your name? So I'm like, get him, Keith. And so we're just engaging in these interactions and, you know, we end up leaving the park and, you know, we overhear what Keith and Shane are sharing with them and their objections for the faith. And immediately my heart just went, let's pray. Let's pray that God would give them like he gave Lydia an ear to incline to the very things that he's saying. So we kept walking and we get back to the church and, man, we get back here and we're just starting to say, man, like what? 
what, what did you see? What did you experience? What did you encounter while you were out? And people just sharing stories of, man, I got to talk to this person. I got to talk to that person. Man, we got to pray with these people. And I got to share the gospel with this person. And on and on, these, these stories are just resounding and resounding and resounding to which joy is filling up. There were some girls with us that I had never even seen or met, but I was like, yo, you're about that life, bet. I'm about that life too. And there was love. There was love because we knew that we were in this together. And it was as if the, what we read in God's word, as if we had jumped into the pages of scripture. And as we had begun to experience what, what we see in the early church, this, this activity, this engagement, this moving outside of the four walls of the church and engaging the lost. And I said, this is it. This is Christianity. I love sitting here with you all, and I love worshiping, and I love singing songs, but if it stops at just that, brothers and sisters, we've missed it. I think that today God is calling us to get beyond what American Christianity has formed or morphed into, this isolation, this, these, uh, 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 these silos of Christians getting together and just preaching to the choir of just being content with showing up on Sunday as if God's intended purpose, that it, as if God's salvation plan was to make it just so comfortable and convenient for you to gather and hear a message on Sunday, but then the rest of the week belongs to you. What we experienced then was an attractive Christianity. There was a flavor to that that was just like, you know when you get that sweet tooth and you're like, man, I don't know what I got a taste for right now, but I just need something sweet. And then you finally get it. Pound cake, there you go. And you finally get it and you're like, that hit the spot. That hit the spot. It was in doing something as simple, something as, simple as devoting an hour, two hours of our time that we tasted something from the Lord that couldn't have been experienced on Sunday morning, couldn't have been experienced in my weekly Bible study. It was in us getting outside of ourselves that we were able to experience the goodness of God, that, that he holds out before all of his people opportunities to experience his joy. And so here today we find ourselves in the book of Acts. This is our origin story. You want to know about what the church is and who it is? Just know the church wasn't handcrafted or the church is not a, a, a cleverly concocted institution devised by the wisdom of men. The church is God-breathed. The church is brought into existence through the very words of Jesus Christ. And so here at the very beginning of this text, we see Luke. You could call him Inspector Gadget. Luke is this historian, and what he does is in the gospel of Luke, he has already written an apologetic to his friend. He said, I'm, I'm going to research, I'm going to do my work, I'm going to compile every single record that's been ever accounted for for the life and person of Jesus, and I want you to have it. I want you to know that the things I'm instructing you in aren't something that I came up with, but, but they're eyewitness, eyewitness accounts. So Acts 1 begins with a recap of sorts. It reads as, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day that he was taken up after he had given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he had presented himself alive to them in many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's pause. Let's pause right there. If you're familiar with the end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, really just compiles a whole list of how Jesus rose from the grave. It accounts bit by bit of eyewitness accounts of people who experienced him, who witnessed him, who went to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And over and over again, it, it just reiterates what Luke is already saying. Theophilus knew that Jesus had risen from the dead because he had the first book. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why does Luke take the time to recap for Theophilus what he had already previously told him? And I think the answer to that question is simple. It's the same answer for us. That if you don't understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, that if you aren't fully confident that he is risen from the dead, that he sits on high, that he is at the right hand of the Father, that, that, that he rose in bodily form and revealed himself to other people, then everything that follows in the book of Acts will make no sense. Everything else that you read from Acts 1, verses 12 and on, will not make any sense. And isn't that so true of us? That we have to be reminded of this Jesus that we've professed to know And we need to be reminded that Jesus is not dead in the tomb, but in fact, he's living. And so he does just that. And so before we can unpack even those first 11 verses, let's go back. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to Luke 24. Because, church, if I'm honest, when I read those three verses, the first time I came to it, my heart didn't really leap. The first time that I read that, yeah, I wrote these things about Jesus to Theophilus. My my heart didn't really combust of worship. Sometimes in the church, we can have this, I already know that mentality. We can have even this morning that when we hear songs about the goodness of God, we can say, God, that doesn't move me because I already know that about you. And so it's important for us to actually stop. And what I had to do for my my own soul and my own heart is that I got, God, remind me. God, let me not think that the resurrection is something I can move be past, move past, but let me understand that the resurrection is something that I need daily. That I need to be reminded that Jesus is living on a throne. Because if I don't, then I'll live my life for other things. If I don't, I won't understand the power that you've actually given to your church and your people to live the life that you desire to to lead because I'll live my life in my own strength and not yours. Luke 24, we're just going to walk through it. More than anything today, I don't want you to leave with my words. I want you to leave with the words of God. I want you to be full of what God says about himself and then, and then leave you with a simple charge and a simple question. But before we get to that, let's go. Luke 24 it says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Um, 
let me back up a little bit. Verse, uh, chapter 23, the end of that, Jesus had just been hung on the cross. A man named Joseph, the Bible says, is a righteous man. He takes the body down. He carries it to the temple. He wraps Jesus' body in fine linen, puts it in the temple, moves this rock in front of the temple and says, and buries whom we know to be the Lord and Savior. Other accounts and other gospels will say that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were so scared about the actual possibility of a resurrection that they were willing to go to Pilate and say, look, just in case what Jesus said is true, we, I need you for, for you for y'all to seal this temple. Because the worst thing that could happen, that if this Jesus said he's going to raise in three days, we don't want to give any room for his followers to come and remove the body. Because if they do, if they can concoct a plan to make Jesus' proofs true, then that will be far worse than the actual life of Jesus Christ. And so they do that. They seal it with this huge boulder. They put this ribbon around it, and they place some guards in front of it. What grave site do you know that exists today that has a secret service watching over it? There, Jesus in the tomb, perfectly sealed, perfectly protected. You, you have to start to see the scheme of the enemy that if I can extinguish all that Jesus was and is, then I can scatter his people. Satanic attack right here in the text. The women come. They approach it. They come to rub incense on the body. They come to make it smell better. They come to take care of it. And yet, what do they find? Nothing. They find the stone rolled away that was virtually immovable. They look into it and they find that the body of the Lord Jesus is not there. And they're perplexed. When we read this account, the things that I want you want to, to stand out or want you to gravitate on is that, that these were people who walk with Jesus personally. And there's going to be these words used that the disciples, the very people who walk with Jesus and live with Jesus, who knew that Jesus said, I will raise up in the third day. Right here at his death, they're perplexed about the very reality that Jesus promised. That it says over and over again that they were confused. They didn't understand how this could come to be. And I want you, church, to find comfort in the fact that the people of God have always wrestled with doubt and uncertainty. But how does Jesus respond? It continues on. Why these two angels appear to them in heavenly drip, flossing. To which it freaks them out. They're looking in the tomb and they find these two heavenly beings that came out of nowhere. And they tremble with fear. And they say to him, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Saying it is necessary that the son of man be betrayed into the hands of sinful into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe 
the women. It's one thing for a random stranger to come to you and to be like, yo, I know we just buried old boy, but guess what? The the, the grave is empty, right? You can dismiss that. It's another thing for the mother of Jesus to come to you and to be like, yo, I just went to the funeral site, and guess what? It's empty. And yet it says that the apostles were like, yo, let me check that cup real quick. Tequila, exactly, that's what I thought. There was this disbelief. What are y'all talking about? Y'all crazy. Peter, Peter, it says, he, however, gets up and he runs to the tomb. And when he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. And so he went away amazed as, as to what happened. Peter, of all people, the one whom Jesus said, hey, Peter, come out to me. And he walks on water. Peter, of all people, should have been the one like, yeah, by now we should know that when Jesus said something, we should actually believe it, y'all. But no, he's amazed. What happened? I don't know. I can't imagine something like this happened. The text continues. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. I want to pause right there. Two men who had seen and heard about the resurrection or the death of Jesus are on this pathway. They talked about it's about a seven-mile journey, and they're going back and forth about what had actually taken place. And in the midst of their disbelief and their doubt, it says that Jesus came near to them. Jesus approached them on the road. And I don't know about you, but if I'm on the belt line and I'm walking somewhere and I know that there's people that could possibly come after me and kill me, the last thing that I'm going to do is engage in a conversation with some random dude in a hoodie that pops up on me and then says, hey, what are y'all talking about? That's the last thing I'm going to do. But they engage with him. They weren't able to recognize him, but they begin this conversation. And then he asked them, what is the dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. And the one named Cleopas, and you know that had to be a brother because his name is Cleopas. And he answered them and he says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that had happened here? And Jesus says, what things? And so they said to them, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech. Therefore, God, uh, powerful in action and in speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Imagine the turmoil within. The one that we had placed our trust in, we were hoping that he would be everything that we wanted him to be. And now we're left with nothing but despair. Nothing but despair. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the temple, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found out just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And so Jesus responds, and he says to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have written. Wasn't it necessary 
for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory. In typical, in typical Jesus fashion, he comes near people who are doubting, but he doesn't leave you in your doubt. He comes near those that are, are wrestling with the reality of who he is, and, but he doesn't leave them there. He looks upon that and he says, don't you know that I've revealed myself to you in the scriptures? And what does he do? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I had to stop here because I, I, I thought about this passage and I realized that this was so true for our church. That as pastors, we get a chance to hear the testimonies of each and every one of our members and, and that there are those sitting here who found or were found by Jesus when they reached their bottom, when they reached their low, and they picked up that Bible, and as they read the scriptures, God unveiled himself to them, and that was the very thing that brought faith, meeting a real Jesus through the pages of scripture. Jesus still reveals himself in this very way. That should encourage us as we think about how we view the scriptures of God, that God's word is not empty of power. God has revealed himself in his word, and therefore, something as simple as just reading your Bible, can, God can use that to bring about faith, to bring about trust in him. For the sake of time, I'm going to recap these past verses. The disciples, they continue on with Jesus. They're going back and forth about, man, Jesus, teach us more, teach us more. Finally, they get to a stopping point, and they're like, yo, we see that Jesus is going further. Jesus, will you come home and will you break bread with us? So Jesus comes to the house and he's sitting, he's still teaching, teaching, teaching. And then he does something so spectacular. He takes the bread that he had, he blesses it, and then he breaks it for them. And it's in that moment that they realize that they've been sitting with Jesus. And then they go and they're like, yo, what just happened? We got to go and tell the other apostles. And so they go back seven miles that evening. Within that hour, it says, they go back and they're behind closed door and they're telling each other, yo, remember what Mary and them said? We was bugging. He's alive. We were just with him. And it's even at that moment while they're discussing that, and you can just imagine, they're like, yo, y'all, y'all remember that last meal we had with Jesus where he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to us? Yo, he did it again. Only Jesus has that swag, y'all. And they still didn't want to believe. And so as they're talking back and forth, y'all, these are real men. These are real people. They're talking. The door's locked. They fear that there's an outward threat that's going to get them if they're, if they're told that if people find out that they're followers of Christ, they can lose their life. So the door's shut. As they are talking, Jesus pops up again. He pops up and he says, peace to you. Now just imagine for a moment, if you're behind closed doors and you're talking to your brothers about some crazy supernatural stuff that you've just witnessed, and then behind closed doors, this random figure appears, you better believe when they say they were startled and terrified. You can only imagine what that meant. I shared this story a while back, and I'll probably share it at least once a year. Um, a few years ago, well, when we were in college, uh, our college ministry, the men and women used to have these wars and these battles, right? 
And so we would do things like we would get water balloons and we would kidnap people in a Christian way. In a Christian way. And we would hold them hostage and we'd call them, be like, yo, we got your girl. And we're putting like mustard in their hair and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. And so one night we're like, yo, let's dress up in all black. We're going to get them. Let's fill the guns, the balloons, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go to the apartment. And so we do that. And so we're outside of their apartment. It's about 10 o'clock at night. And so we throw a few water balloons, you know, at their apartment window. And so it was me and John and a few of our other homeboys. Well, one of the girls, she knew it was us, but she tried to pretend she didn't know. She knew it was us out there. And so she calls a football player and she's like, yo, there's these random dudes outside of our home and they're trying to get us. Click. So we're there, we're hiding, ducking behind cars, and this car pulls up ever so slowly. So this dude, you know, cock diesel football player, he comes out the car. And John, being the friendly guy, he wants to stand up from the car and be like, hey, man, how you doing? And so this dude must have got scared. So what he does is he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out a Glock and he cocks it back. And so at this moment, (laughs) I'm black, y'all. So when I see a gun, I'm running. And the next thing that we see is just people jumping over each other. But what stood out the most was John, the man that wanted to be friendly and wave. All we hear is little pitter-patter footsteps in the opposite direction. (laughs) But not only that, John utters this indescribable squeal. (laughs) He's like, Jesus! And he's just running. (laughs) And we're like, yo, John, we know that your life matters most to you, bro. And I always tell the story when John's on sabbatical, so he can't. <clears throat> and so you have to imagine, y'all, that when Jesus appears to his disciples behind a closed door, you had to know there was that one dude that was like, Jesus! Right? <laughs> lost the man card, lost everything. But then you also have to realize that Peter was the dude who, when they tried to take Jesus the first time, he took his sword off and cut off a guard's ear. So he's the gangster of the bunch. So you got to know Peter was like, yo, get the strap. Where's the strap? Where's the strap? And so you got these men, they're just startled. They're just startled in disbelief. So Jesus does what only he can do. And he says, yo, I'm not a ghost. Peace to you. Y'all was frying chicken. Give me a piece of chicken. Let me eat it. Look at my nails. Look at the piercing in my hands. Look at the piercing in my feet. Put your finger in my side. Know that I am Jesus. I'm going to skip down to the very last verse. And it says that, verse 50, Then he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into the heavens. And after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. When God's people encounter the resurrection, it changes everything. The only hope that these disciples had were that Jesus was risen. And that truth alone was enough to cause them to night in, Day in, day out, whatever you want to say. It was enough for them to gather together and worship and sing songs to him. 
It was enough for them to come and to pray and to rejoice that our Savior is alive. Our King is risen. He's on the throne. He's alive. He's not dead. And they did it, turning up night after night after night after night. The thing that I want you to see is that there was joy. There was joy in their hearts. Joy. Does your Christian walk, does your Christian experience, does your experience with God bring you joy? Or do you need something else? Is the resurrection not enough for you? You need something else. They were filled with joy. Acts, Acts 4, or Acts 1, verse 4. I take us back to the resurrection because if you don't understand that Jesus is alive, if you don't understand and you don't fully believe, you're not fully confident or sold with the reality that, that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a dead man. When we preach about Jesus, we're not preaching a, pers- a, a man that's still in the grave. That what separates Christianity from all other faiths is the fact that there actually existed a man who lived on earth, who ate food like us, who cried tears like us, who experienced every temptation that known to man that was killed. But three days later rose from the grave. Three days later rose from the grave. And now. This same Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the power of God. Luke twenty two sixty nine. He's the one who has been given the nations as an inheritance in every single, in the very ends of the earth as his possession. Psalm 2. He is the one highly exalted by God who was given a name above every name. Philippians 2. He is both Lord and Christ. He is the prince who can grant forgiveness of sins. He is the one over angels and powers and authorities and all are subject to him. We don't worship the Jesus in the grave. We worship the Jesus that's alive, that sits on a throne. If you don't get that, then the words in Acts 1 eight and nine will ring hollow to you. If you don't understand the lordship of Christ, that God, Jesus never invites anyone into anything. We invite people to stuff. We invite people to Jesus as if he's holding out an invitation card and saying, yo, I got a party, come if you want. I'm gonna do my own thing. No. Jesus is Lord. When Jesus speaks, he expects obedience. Think of what we're going to get to. Think of what Jesus, the last words that Jesus is leaving to his people. Think of a king who had the power to crush you speaking to you. Think of a king who, if he gave you instruction and you didn't respond, then it was off with your head. And this isn't to say that Jesus is going to literally kill his people. Absolutely not. This is the beauty of grace. But don't confuse grace as permission to disobey a holy king. What's crazy about this is that disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. Verse 4 in the 
chapter 1, he says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? The Jews didn't need to be convinced of the reality that there would be a Messiah that would come. But their hopes in that Messiah was that he would restore and exalt them to a place of world dominance. They expected Jesus to come and his resurrection as proof that, God, will you redeem Israel? Will you restore her to their, its rightful place above all of the nations? Would you build them up with fame and popularity and power? God, we want a king who will give us more of a political agenda than a spiritual one. Lord, are you going to redeem Israel finally? I wish we could say that we're any different. I, could, I wish that we could say that as a church that we're different from them. But we're not. How many of us hoard the good news of the gospel because there's this sense of arrogance of, I belong to God. How many of us really want God to exalt our platforms and our positions and to give us wealth and riches and, and nice cars and nice houses because we want to be seen as God's chosen or his favored people? God, you show them that we belong to you. You show them that we are your chosen ones. You show them that we're greater than them. Jesus tells them, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is one of those mind your business moments. Mind your business. You're focused on the wrong things. Your hope is misplaced. I'm not going to exalt you in order so that the world can serve you. No, I'm going to make you servants of the world. God's economy is that we receive relationship with him by grace, through faith, taste of his goodness. We experience him. We boldly proclaim, I know God to be true. And then he says, now go and serve. Now go and lay your life down like I laid my life down. You will be my witnesses. Let me unpack that. The promise precedes the command. Jesus says, and you will be clothed with power on high. God's sending someone for us. And so God's intended plan for his church, the people that he's bringing together, is for us to realize that there is no way, no way possible that we will ever be able to accomplish what God has called us to do without help. God didn't, he didn't build it that way. That God's people will always be marked by dependence upon what he eagerly and freely wants to provide. Are your ministry efforts built upon your own strength or God's? Are your ministry pursuits built on your own strength or they, are they dependent upon God? Don't labor in vain. Unless you abide in me and I abide in you, then you can do nothing. Let those words echo within your souls. Some of us are more ambitious than we are dependent. 
Some of us have great dreams for what we want God to do in our life, but we haven't even sought him about what God wants to do in your life. And so if we live our Christian lives and, and we think that God is okay with us coming up with a master plan for how our lives are, are going to be, and then, and then when we finally build a kingdom for ourselves and we sprinkle him on top as if he was involved, that God's not jealous, that we're not robbing him of his glory. Church, let us not think that God is impressed by how many people are sitting in these pews. Wicked men can build a church. Godless men can lead people. God is saying, no, I'm going to want you to wait on me. I want you to sit still. I want you to hold on. I know you're excited. I want you to be patient because I'm sending something to help you. I'm going to clothe you in power. And he's not saying this to individuals. He's saying this to a church. He's saying this to a group of people. And I think we need to hear that. That belonging to a church means that we're going to put aside some of our own ambitions and we're going to participate in the mission that God has given the church. That we're going to stop thinking that being a part of the church means that I'm going to be able to do everything that I want to do. And if I can't, then I'm not going to participate in anything else. God's given us here at Cornerstone a mission. He's given us a specific target of people that he desires for us to reach. And you are a hindrance to the ministry. Church, hear me this. You are a hindrance to the ministry of God if you come here desiring to be a member of this church. And then the moment you become a member, you want to shift and bend the church's mission to align with your own. This church is not about you. One pastor said it like this. When someone was complaining about the worship on Sunday, one pastor said it like this. He said, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. How many times do we want the church to become the end all, the be all for my desire for longing community? My desire for satisfaction and significance. My desire for people to praise me, to bow down to me, to serve me. God is saying, look here. Don't have a say in what I, what I say the church will be. Notice that God gives the instruction. Jesus is giving the instruction. And he's saying, this is what you will be, authority. You will be my witnesses. Promise. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to understand what it means to be a witness. That word witness in the Greek is the same word for martyr. It's the exact same word. That to be a witness for Jesus means that you're committing to die. Not always a physical death, but he may. But dying to your plans, dying to your dreams, dying to your hopes. Dying to your ambitions, dying to your fears, dying to your insecurities, dying to you name it. And when you hear that, don't hear that you are having to settle for less. That if you give up those things that you're settling for less, no. That's settling for less. Because he gives a plan. 
He gives purpose. He says, you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. And every single one of us on Sunday morning, we should rejoice because the gospel made its way from the Middle East and it made its way over the waters and it made its way to the continent of North America and it made it to our street and to our, con- uh, into our university and it made it into our homes. And as a result, we're here today. He says, you'll be my witnesses everywhere. And then Jesus, while they're hearing these things, while they're hearing these words, it says that after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into the heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by, stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way. To have seen him going into heaven. Our Christianity is built on the, on the truth that Jesus, yes, he came. Yes, he rose from the dead. But yes, he's coming back. Yes, he's coming back. And as his people, we cry, Maranatha. Maranatha, Lord, come quick. sitting in my, every morning, I, my routine is I wake up, make some coffee, get my Bible, go on my balcony, and I sit, and I'm going to spend time with Jesus. So it was one day, I'm sitting on my balcony, and for whatever reason, I had this family of squirrels that want to hang in the trees all behind me. And so for this, on this day, they are just running and running and running, and, and it looked like they're eating something. I'm like, yo, what's going on? And so I begin to see this one squirrel. He was the bold one out of the bunch. I've got about a long branch that is about six inches thick, extends about 15 feet toward my house. But then I noticed this one squirrel, he, he was forsaking kind of the like easy fruit. And so he begins to travel and quickly he begins to run on these branches. And there's this like little twig on the end that I'm like, why is he going after that seed when there's plenty of seeds that are a lot easier? So he keeps going back and forth, going back and forth, going back and forth. So I'm watching him, and I'm like, man, why does he keep going after this seed on this fragile? Seems like if you go any longer, this branch is going to break. Why does he keep going that far? So he did it, and I guess he saw that I was watching him because he decided to flex on me. And so he goes, and he's hanging from, the, the, hanging from his two feet upside down, and he's just nibbling on this nut. And I'm like, okay, I see you. So then out the corner of my eye, I see another squirrel, and I see this object fall from the tree. And mind you, I don't have little squirrels. I've got cats. They're, they're feline squirrels. So I see this squirrel fall to the tree, but then I see him caught. Something, some other tree, some other branch catches him, and he goes back up the tree, and he does it again. And I begin to think about that, and I said, man, that's such a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. That that tree was born by seed going into the ground, dying, sprouting up, growing. Its branches start to extend. 
And then these squirrels, they know that there's seed on the end of those leaves, on the end of those branches, and they just start scurrying up, starting from the bottom and extending out. And as they're gathering the seed, they get some, and then they go back, and then they get some more, and they go back, and, and, and they understand that what, 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 it, what, what extends or, or the seed that's even on the branches that seems scary is worth for me to go and get to bring back to its fold. And I said, man, God, that's your kingdom. And when you say that there's a harvest out there, that there's a harvest of seed that you prepared for yourself. Squirrel didn't have anything to do with the actual preparation of the seed. It didn't plant the tree. But there's a seed out there, a harvest plentiful. And when you look in the harvest and you have compassion, you say, man, the harvest is plentiful with the labors of few. What would it look like for us as a church to be like those squirrels? To see the harvest that God has prepared for us and actually go gather it up. Not with any boast that we are the ones doing it, but with the confidence that God has said, be witnesses. Go and get it. I've prepared it. Go and share. Open your mouth. Be my witnesses. Your cancer, your anxiety, your depression, your job loss, your jobs. Witness about me. Your marriages, witness about me. The beauty of belonging to God is that there's nothing that we could ever boast in. There were years where I wanted to hide the difficulties of my marriage. Because I was ashamed of, I was fearful of what would other people think about me. But as Christians, isn't it beautiful that we can point to the ugliness of our lives? We can say, that was all me. That was hard. That was suffering. That was difficult. But then also say, but look now. Look what God has done through it. Look what God is doing through it. Look what God wants to do through it. And we get to celebrate his work in our lives and not our own effort. There's nothing to be ashamed ashamed of, church. But as we conclude, I want to leave us with this. This is the foundation for how God built his church gathers it for himself, he builds it, he speaks purpose over it, and then he sends them out. Next week, we're going to get into how was the church, see how it's formed, but how was it shaped? This is the markers of what it looks like to follow Jesus that we, as his people, should look to and say, man, there's so much I can learn, so much further I've got to go. So as we leave, this is going to be our benediction, but I think it will be helpful for us to hear it even now. If there's so many people within our church that I just want to, I can celebrate and say, man, you're living this, our faithful witness. Man, your life embodies this completely. And there are those who I'm like, I want to encourage and say, even if your life doesn't look like that now, it can. Keep fighting, brothers and sisters. Keep pressing on. Don't give up. Don't settle for less. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, movable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's nothing that happens in your life that God will not use. There's nothing, no effort, prayer, no conversation that God doesn't see 
I'm going to breathe on at his time, his appointed hour. Keep pressing on. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that we get to testify and we get to preach about a God who is living. God who is even now seated on the right hand of God that is a God who displayed the fullness of his power in the death, burial, and resurrection of cross, but now a God that dispenses his power to his people to be witnesses. Father, I pray that even now your spirit would lead us to repent. Father, we ask for repentance because we can't contrive it on our own. We can't muster it up on ourselves. Father, genuine repentance is spiritual work. Father, will we freely confess the ways in which we've been more caught up with what the church should be for us rather than us participating in the advancement of your kingdom? Father, we would rather stay within our comfortable silos than we would tell somebody about Jesus, Father, and that is utterly selfish. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of allowing fear to paralyze us, to keep us and convince us that It would be better to keep our mouths shut and not be embarrassed than to open our mouths and be. Father, would our prime, would our supreme concern be for your glory? Be for your glory, God. That we would be willing to view you as a far greater treasure than anything that we could have in this life. That we would look at the fact that your son is living and active and powerful and has been given everything. That that would be enough to embolden us. To embolden us and say, I, I, I can't keep my mouth shut. I can't not tell everybody about this. This is amazing. This is good news. Father, I pray for those that are here even right now that they're not amazed with the fact that your son Jesus rose from the dead. They're not convinced. They may carry the title of Christian, but their heart is far from you. Father, I pray that your spirit even right now would move upon them. I pray right now that your spirit would remove the calloused hearts, that it would open the blinded eyes, And that they would see you for the Lord that you are. They would trust you as Savior. That they would know that there is nothing that this world can offer them that would be any more satisfying than your son Jesus. Father, with the words that we sang, hallelujah be. Hallelujah, Lord. Your way is so much better. Your way is so much better. Father, would we move? Would we serve you? Would we risk it all for you because you're worthy? You're the one worthy. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Would that be our heart? We ask it in Jesus' name.